and this guy comes up next to me and he's just like starts crying he's just like looks up at the sky and he's, he's crying and it's just like everyone can't wait to get back out you know and we're you know here just to help facilitate that and make that the best experience that they've ever had for discovering these events and buying the tickets and going to the show and getting in and having those moments and those memories like that's what we're that's what we're trying to do Hi, everyone. Welcome to How Music Charts, where we pull back the curtain on today's music business, exploring music industry trends, music data, and the creativity that helps your favorite artists hit the charts. I'm your co-host, Rutger, and you'll hear from our other co-host, Jason, soon. This podcast is owned and operated by Chartmetric, a music data company that connects numbers to narratives to help the music industry leverage the power of data analytics. On this episode, we chat with DICE president Russ Tannen about how the DICE platform is helping independent music venues, artists, and fans as live music comes back to many major cities. Russ Tannen is president of DICE, a UK and now NYC-based mobile ticketing, live streaming, and live music recommendation platform that partners directly with venues, labels, and promoters to bring upfront pricing to live music fans. In other words, no fees are added at checkout, so the price you see at first is the price you get. Before rising through the ranks at DICE, Russ spent many years as an artist manager at Deadly Management, during and after his time as an events manager at Vice Media. Before that, Russ studied photography at the University for the Creative Arts in the UK. So, please welcome to the How Music Charts podcast, Russ Tannen. Hi, Russ. Thanks so much. It's so nice to be here. Thanks, guys. You're coming to us from uh, New York City, is that correct? Yeah, my new home, New York City. I just moved here at the uh, start of April, so um, I'm just in the Lower East Side. Where are you guys? Uh, I'm in Queens and Rutgers and I'm in Brooklyn in Bed-Stuy. Cool. So welcome, welcome. Thank so you. before we get into your career in music at all, uh, could you tell us a bit how you got into music just as a first place, just as a human being growing up on the small island off the south coast of England? Oh, uh, uh, yeah. On the Isle of Wight. Yeah. I, um, I, I was I first I got really into pop music, you know, really young. Um, I was like super obsessed with like Spice Girls and everything. The first tape I ever bought was the uh, Backstreet Boys, Backstreet's Back. Um, and I got really into it and I was, I was, I was obsessed. I was, uh, I was writing letters into the, mag- I remember getting the letter of the week in Smash Hits magazine, which was like the main pop magazine in the UK. And that was like the best thing that ever happened to me. It's like, a I guess 10 or 11 year olds. Um, but quickly, quickly faded and, and got super into like punk and, and hardcore bands. Um, there was a skate shop on the same street that I lived and used to hang out in there a lot. And they used to play awesome records. And one time this guy came in and gave me a bag of records, which was basically like a window into a world I didn't know existed. And yeah, just got me super into all of that. I actually saw Rancid play on, um, on Saturday night at Forest Hill stadium. And I was like, Whoa, like I remember learning how to play bass, listening to and out come the wolves. I was like, if I can play all the bass lines on and out come the walls, then I can really play bass. And I just like kept on trying, like reading on the tab and doing that yeah. um, when I was a kid. So it was amazing to see them. Yeah. But that was kind of my, that was my first sort of entry into it. I read that you had a zine as well. Can you tell us what that zine was about? Oh yeah. I had a zine um, just about South Coast hardcore bands and a little record label that was all like burning I used, I used to burn the cds off you know on the computer it wasn't like getting impressed or anything um and i was promoting shows from when i was 15 years old so uh just like got stuck straight into it i remember the first show that i promoted 
I put posters all around uh, the Isle of Wight uh, on all the bus stops, like letterboxes everywhere, and uh, not knowing that that's completely illegal to do. And I remember getting the phone call the next day from someone at the at the like local council or something saying you've you've uh, you've got to go down go around and take down all these posters again. I was like devastated, but I guess since that age, I've always been trying to figure out how to get people to go to shows. So you started booking bands at local pubs um, during this kind of phase of your life. What kind of was it? Was it bands solely in, in those genres, or and you know how have your music preferences kind of changed? Yeah, it was mostly like punk and hardcore bands, like heavy music, like in general. Um, that was just what I was really into. So that's what I was kind of interested in getting getting to the Isle of Wight. Like no one was playing on the Isle of Wight. You know, I was like one of the only people trying to put on shows yeah. there. Um, but I was just kind of really into the DIY kind of mindset, um, the positive kind of mindset of that whole world. And I think it's really interesting, like as you get older in life, like you realize like so many of the people that are involved in that kind of punk and hardcore scene, like they end up doing kind of amazing things because it's very much like a self-starter sort of attitude you have to have um, or that maybe draws that those types of people um, to that type of music. So yeah, it's uh, that, that was kind of the whole the whole world to me at that moment. It seems like quite a natural transition for you to be a uh, part of a, a startup. Uh, I don't know if you call yourself a startup anymore, but at least a, that kind of like startup kind of like do it yourself kind of mentality. Seems to be. Yeah, I, think, I think we're in the. I think they call it the messy middle, <laughs> the bit that we're in now. So I think we're the we're we're in the scale up um, phase of our journey. I think, but definitely like there's there's a lot of. Um, there's a lot of lessons you learn sort of just starting your own fanzine, you know, like even just making that and doing that, like um, there's a lot of lessons you learn doing those things very young uh, and, and definitely putting on shows. You learn a lot. Um, even when we interview people now, we always like to ask, you know, have you ever promoted a show? A lot of people do when they're at high school or college or university, you know, might put on a club night or something. And we think it's such great life experience to actually put on a, on a, on an event. Um, especially if it doesn't work and you lose money. <laughs> uh, that's, a, that's a big life lesson that, that yeah. it's, it's always a good uh, question in for you to, to see. What is it about the live? Because you've, you've had several stages in your career, which we have yet to get into, but kind of what is it about that live experience that has seemed to really been this thread for you in your career? I think it's, I think it's the, I th yeah, I think it's the best, uh, I think it's the best experience that you can, it's the best type of experience that you can have. I honestly think it's the best thing that you can do with your time. Um, uh, I think that if you're living in a great city, or even if you're living on the Isle of Wight, <laughs> you should um, you should try and be at live music events as much as you can. Um, I think that's a much more rich, rewarding um, thing to do um, than sitting at home and, and watching TV. Mm -hmm. um, so I think those shared experiences, that feeling of being in a room with even dozens of people, it doesn't have to be hundreds or thousands that also love the artist that's playing um, and feeling that connection with them and with the artist or the band that's on the stage. I, I don't think, I don't think there's anything as good as that. Well said. Can you tell us a little bit, cause you mo eventually moved on to be an events manager at Vice. Uh, tell us about the old blue last, what kind of venue was this over in London? Oh, the old blue last is uh, legendary um pub that vice uh, owned and operated um so i uh I, I i managed to get that gig and it was uh it was an amazing three years there um it's a 150 capacity venue 
it's a real kind of um it's a real moment for an artist when they're emerging um and, and growing to sort of headline the old blue last it's a real kind of checkbox i think for a lot of a lot of new artists that are developing um and the the policy with the venue when i was there was always to try and make the shows free so we kind of had a bit of a, a a budget from from vice um to book artists and i remember on my uh, first week on the friday night uh, i was sat at the bar in there with the editor of um, vice um, andy kappa and he said have you tried to book slayer yet and i said no oh, no i haven't <laughs> i was like no no i haven't tried to book them yet and he goes well why not and i was like oh it was my first week and he goes start at the top and work your way down and he was like he just totally reframed what you know I, I thought i was there to do which was the kind of book these small bands and um and that that kind of uh mindset of like going in and trying to book big artists to play in this small room was was awesome it was amazing to have that backing so we did loads of cool shows there like mad underplays um lots of artists did their first ever uk shows there um we booked we we had a lot of us artists come over we booked like Lil B to come over and do a show to like a hundred people. It was insane. We had Death Grips come and do their first show, Purity Ring, um, tons and tons of artists. I can mention it's uh, it was three years and it was we were open every night, you know. So booked hundreds of shows and we actually opened a second venue when I was there as well. So there was one point where we were doing you know two shows a night, <laughs> like each venue, booking all the support bands, and it was just an amazing job. Um, here you call it a talent buyer, you know. There it's like a booker. But um, just listening to new music, like I was on SoundCloud like all day, every day. And if I was on there and something had more than like 10 or 15 plays, I was like, oh, it's, I've missed it. I'm late. <laughs> <laughs> like I was like uh, so like in tune with what was getting made and released. So um, it was an, it was an amazing job in, in that um, in, in that respect, just being so dialed into new music and seeing so much music live. It was awesome. So after that, those three years, you decided to really jump in with both feet into the artist management world. What, what was going through your mind at the time? Where, where were you and why did you make that decision? Yeah, so um, it was totally related. I, was, I, I think I was probably more um, in tune with new music that's getting um, put out in the UK um, than, than probably most people other than probably A&R scouts, you know. So I was hearing so much music and seeing so many bands do their first shows um that i started to naturally pick up artists for for management and i was just managing them in my in my spare time um but then i, I started working with uh, a band called peace from birmingham um who i saw their first london show and they just blew me away and i, I started to manage them and that started to really take off so um went all in with them and a couple other great um bands and um really was just doing it um, by myself for a minute, but um, realized I needed support. We had Sony trying to sign peace and um, I needed help navigating that and ended up working with uh, Phil, who's the CEO at DICE, um, at his management company, which is Deadly. So we teamed up and that was when we started working together, which was actually 10 years ago, um, just a couple of weeks ago. So you moved to DICE around 2013. What were the founding principles and or sort of differentiators of the company or like what attracted you to that company or position in particular? Yeah, so actually DICE was um, born out of our management company, Deadly. 
So um, we were at Deadly working with all the different artists there. We were managing artists, not just the bands that I was looking after, but people like Matthew Deer, Benga, Barakas on Sistema, um, tons of awesome uh, DJs and producers. And um, one thread that we were really seeing with um, how uh, the live part of the business was running was this kind of um, frustration with the ticketing um, from the fan side for the audiences of the artists we manage, but also from the artists themselves. And um, Phil really started to come into um, the Deadly office, um, really animated, talking a lot about ticketing. And we started to experiment with our artists with um, using white label ticketing services and trying um, not to use kind of traditional ticketing outlets to see if we could make a better experience for the artists we were managing. And that was really where DICE um, was born from. So uh, for the first year of DICE, we were actually just working on it again, like in our spare time, we were talking about it you know, in, in the pub over a beer. And um, eventually we managed to do a joint venture with uh, a mobile development studio called Us2 that um, gave us the resources to make the first version of DICE before we um, eventually did our first fundraising round and kind of went all in on um, on, on building DICE a business, which, um, yeah, it's well, 2013. Yeah, it's a while ago now. <laughs> and you guys are directly sourcing or you're, you're forming direct partnerships with like labels and... Uh, venues and promoters how do those come about yeah so i think that the 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 very start um lots of the things about dice that's still true now uh, uh, a lot of the things that we set out to do then are still true now so we wanted to create a completely different way of thinking about both event discovery and ticketing that was going to be much much more um uh, artist and and fan um, friendly so we kind of um, differentiated ourselves straight away in the market by having, um, you know, the full price of the ticket displayed up front, um, the tickets that you can't resell onto the secondary market to eliminate um, reselling, um, thinking about how the experience of buying the ticket actually is in like an obsessive way. So like the actual experience of buying a ticket isn't like this horrible thing you have to do on your computer with your phone on your friend on the phone sort of saying, have you got the tickets? I haven't got the tickets. And you're doing the capture codes and like, just make it really nice and easy. Like all of these things we wanted to do um, straight away. And so I, I think when we launched like that, it also made doing those initial partnerships to your question um, a little easier because we were so clearly different to, to everyone else. So we started just working um, with promoters, with venues, um, with artists themselves, um, with brands sometimes on, um, you know, small allocations of shows and just, just started like that. Um, and then over time that's, that's grown and, and, and built into something much bigger. Obviously venues have been particularly affected by the pandemic. Have you noticed an effect in terms of like venues being more eager to work with you guys? I think that there's, uh, well, there was something that interesting, something interesting that happened for us, um, in the pandemic. So, uh, in March last year, we were, um, you know, we were what, how many years ago? Six. So that's five years, five, six years in the business is growing extremely quickly. Um, we're in all these different countries in Spain in France in Italy, Australia, um, in the U S um, just getting going in the U S um, and in the UK, which is where obviously we're from and, um, our, our sort of main market. And then obviously in March, everything, Kind of hit the brakes um and as, as it did for for everyone um and we made a decision um very early to 
pivot the business into live streaming. And um, that went extremely well for us. Um, to this day, we've done about six and a half thousand paid live stream events through the platform. We've built out the end-to-end um, streaming and um, we've been working directly with um, thousands of different artists on those streams and generating a lot of money for them as well, which has been amazing. Um, and that really kept everything going and everyone extremely busy at Dice through the pandemic. Um, at the same time, we decided that we would really um, focus on working with new venues um, in New York. Um, we really focused kind of our energies here. And um, that's why um, during the pandemic, we were able to sign lots of new partnerships here with venues like Avant Gardner, the Brooklyn Mirage, Elsewhere, the Poisson Rouge, St. Vitus, um, Pianos, uh, Berlin, um, all the good um, ones. Barry Electric, like, yeah, there's tons of, uh, tons, all, the, all the best ones, yeah. Um, so, so all of those um, venues and, and promoters moved over uh, during during the pandemic as well. So um, that was a very focused uh, effort. Um, but now I think that the the benefit might have been, obviously we're on kind of getting to the other side of it now. Um, I think the benefit might have been that that venues only make a decision to choose a ticketing partner maybe twice or three times a decade, right? So the deals are like three to five years long, typically. Um, but normally when people make those decisions, unless it's a new venue that's opening, um, they make the decision while they're also uh, in the middle of um, running events every night. You know, they're very busy. Um, so instead during the pandemic, I think a lot of venues had more time to consider really what the best option was for their customers. And they thought about the type of business they wanted to be coming out of the um, pandemic and um, how they wanted to position themselves and the types of partners they wanted to work with. So I think that we had a lot more longer in-depth conversations with venues um, than we would typically be able to have just because people had, um, you know, rescheduling shows aside, (laughs) they had a little bit more time um, on their hands to to think about those types of decisions. Makes sense. So I know you've talked about like how you guys sort of make things easier for artists and uh, ticket buyers. How do you ultimately help independent venues out? And related to that, what's the best thing that fans and ticket buyers can do to help independent venues out? Oh, that's two good questions. Um, There's a lot that we're doing for venues, uh, if you think about what the product is designed to do, it's um, it's it's an event discovery tool. So it's somewhere that when fans are using it, once they bought their first ticket, they're coming back to every time they're thinking about shows or going to a show or going to a club night. And one of the things that um, I've found really interesting uh, about New York is that until now with Dice, there's not been a event discovery tool like this that's really taken off in the same way that we are now. Um, and that fans here still use um, like listings, blogs, um, email, subscri- like subscribing to venues, email lists, um, and some other kind of like fragmented listing sources to find out what's going on. Um, and no one's really been able to kind of pull it into one place in a way, in a way that... Um, is personalized in the same way that that we have. And that's um, 
really fascinating to me you know, that it hasn't happened until now. Obviously, in, we've been in London a long time and um, you know, a lot of people have dice and use dice all the time in London. So we, we've, we've had it like that there for, for some time now. Um, but now it's a new thing here. And I think that coming into the end of this year, um, now that there's so many people using the platform, that um, the, the venues really get the benefit of that because it means that there's this app on people's phones that people are just going to when they're thinking about going out. Um, which is which is hugely valuable marketing for them, which means that they don't have to spend as much marketing money on um, social media advertising, which every year becomes more expensive and less effective. Mm. So we're really trying to replace that spend with something that's really being entirely designed to sell tickets to their events. Um, and then we're trying to back that up as well with um, all of the back-end tools and, and systems that they need to run their venues effectively too. With, so with Dice being in so many different markets, is there something that you found varies like very wildly between venues in city A versus city B versus city C? Is there like, I don't know, whether it be something on the artist side of things or the venue side of things or the way the, the local um, fans behave that you find very interesting? There's, um, there's a good saying about ticketing in general, which is uh, it's a global... Uh, concept but a local practice so anywhere in the world you go you say can i buy a ticket and someone knows what you mean um but the way that it actually works and the way that it's evolved over definitely over the last um few decades is, is completely different everywhere everything from the laws and regulations the technology to the purchase behavior and and how things work um we were told a, a story once um by uh, Robbie Williams manager who's telling us about um, going on sale with a huge Robbie Williams uh, stadium tour. It was all through uh, Europe and they get the first on sale numbers and they're going through and everything's like sold out on the first day and they get to Germany and Germany is sold, you know, 2% of the tickets mm. and straight on the phone to the agent, what's going on in Germany? Like we've made a big mistake, but we should have done the show. And, um, and the agent calls the promoter and the promoter says, no, no, it's fine. We're going to, we're going to sell out next week. You know, the sales come through, everything's selling out to Germany and it's on 4% of tickets sold. He calls the agent, the agent calls the promoter and the promoter says, no, no, don't worry. Don't worry. It's, it's going to sell out. It's going to sell out and so on and so on until, you know, the week before the show, it's at, you know, 98% sold. And it's just this perfectly linear thing where the closer it gets to the show, the more people are, sure that they're going to be able to go and they've planned and they're going to buy the tickets. And that's true um, of that market. And there's, and there's different behaviors like that um, in, in every country that, that just change wildly. And it's all to do with um, the local culture and also um, the scarcity of um, shows. Um, and also to do with if once people have got, had that, you know, painful experience of, Oh no, I, I missed tickets to that show and it sold out that then, drives their next behavior of buying the ticket as soon as it goes on sale. So in a, in a major city like New York or London or LA, people are buying tickets early because they, they know that those shows are going to sell out. Got it. So Dice does a lot of things. There's mobile ticketing, live streaming, uh, music recommend, recommendation, as you mentioned before, merchandise. How do you, what's like the MBA you know, like level, like look at how you see all those pieces moving together. Do you see, see one as kind of like your main driver for, for business and everything else is kind of uh, support set or is it all kind of in a, all major pieces kind of interlocking in, in a way? 
we we look at it kind of like uh, three three pillars: um, fans uh, being our our customer, our our, um, our um, internal mantra on that is that our only customer is the fan. Um, I think that's very different for a ticketing platform. Um, we've really built everything designed to improve the fan experience. So that's kind of number one. Um, number two being um, our partners, be it a venue or a um, or a promoter. So thinking about how to build them the tools that they need and um, make sure that their events are being seen by the right fans at the right times um, to sell the tickets to the shows um, or the live streams, um, as you said. Um, and the third being the artists. So how do we actually um, work with artists directly to um, build their careers? I think that one, one of the things that happened very early with Dice was that we uh, were able to attract artists because our tickets are not able to be resold on secondary market. So when Adele was playing her shows at the O2 Arena and then Wembley Stadium, she worked with us on a portion of the ticketing because she wanted to protect as many tickets as possible from the secondary market. And that's true of lots of major artists that we work with, um, from Kanye West to um, Tyler the Creator. You know, like there's tons of artists that have worked with us um, for that for that reason. What's what's happening now that we have this large global network of um, venues and promoters that we're that we're partnered with is that we can um, take an artist and work directly with their team um, on getting them into dice venues in a really interesting strategic way um, that might be in one country in one city or it might be globally. So um, if an artist wants to play a series of shows in, in dice venues, then 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 they can do that. Um, a great example of this is we work with the uh, producers uh, Bicep. So uh, when they were taking their, they're very well established DJs. They were developing their live show, um, and we worked with them on a series of shows in London, starting at around 600 capacity, and then we used our, our waiting list feature, um, which turns on when an event sells out, so we can measure demand um, past the sellout. And we could then inform the promoter and the agent and the manager and the artists themselves on how big the next shows should be. And we can also market those next shows to the fans that would join the waiting list. So we were able to take them from 500 um, up to uh, 10,000 tickets sold over three nights um, at a great venue called Printworks in London. Um, and it was all done using, you know, the fact that they were making and still do make amazing music, of course, um, and have an amazing show, but also using the data that we could give them um, from the waiting list to inform their decisions about um, the size of shows that they could be playing, which we can work with the promoter and the agent on to, to make those decisions right. So that's um, that's a kind of a real life example of how we work with artists and, and how they tie in. So those are the three things that we're looking at. So I know you're tired about talking about COVID, but so let me try to approach this from a quote of yours from earlier this year uh, that Rucker found. You say, when shows do come back, I think it'll be normal to watch live stream, even if you can't go to the event yourself like you can with sports. It'd be weird if the only way you could see Manchester United, for us Americans, that is a football soccer team, uh, would play would be to go to Old Trafford, uh, their stadium. But that's what we do in music. If you want to see Adele at Wembley Stadium, you have to go to the stadium. Could you talk about that that concept a little bit more? Yeah, I mean, we never had a conversation about live streaming at Dice until March, April last year. Like, we never talked about it. Never thought it's going to be part of our business. 
really just wasn't something that ever came up. And then within weeks, you know, it was the whole company. Uh, we remember, I remember doing um, an all hands um, where we said kind of everyone works for Dice TV. We call it Dice TV. Everyone works for Dice TV now, you know. <laughs> um, and it was fascinating because it did a few things. One was um, we did almost everything directly with artists and the managers I had artists calling me up directly somehow getting my phone number asking to do live streams um that was the time we were in i guess um we um we we also found very quickly though that the live stream had the ability to create an emotional connection with the audience that we didn't think was there um and we saw it very early the first paid live stream we did uh with with lewis capaldi and you know, we were just looking through Twitter and it's like endless people posting pictures of them, with their front room set up and they're watching the live stream. And it was like they were at the show. What we realized within a matter of weeks from that point was that when the quality of the live stream is high, there's an ability to reach a truly global audience. So we made the app available globally, unlike ticketing, which is obviously hyper-local. You know, you're only buying tickets to things in the city where you either are or you're going to be. Um, the, the live stream was completely global and we can sell a ticket to a live stream anywhere in the world and ended up selling tickets in, I think it's about 172 countries for live streams, um, which is almost all the countries. So, um, yeah, so, uh, we, we, we realized that was there. And we also realized that where people were buying tickets wasn't necessarily in major cities. So you start to see these signals there that, it's not the people that are normally going to shows watching the live streams. It's the people who maybe never really get to catch a break show. And they were really excited about the opportunity to watch a live stream of an artist. If it's done well and the quality's there, then why not? And so that was where the analogy with sports came in because obviously these huge sporting teams, um, they, you know, not everyone gets to go, um, but everyone can watch um so that's kind of where we where we were with that and i think that it's you know true that through this summer i think live streaming is has dipped considerably as things have returned um to live as things have started to reopen over the last few months and you know thank thankfully you know they have and that's all going very well and it's extremely successful for um lots of promoters and venues and artists getting out there and playing again it's been an awesome experience um, but I think as we get through to the end of the year, then um, thinking about those hybrid models of how live streaming can sit on top of a live experience is going to be really valuable for um, for artists. I think that artists are going to be able to do something significant with a live streaming audience and reach a different audience with their live streams, which I think will come from um, shows. I think it will be that, you know, you play at a great venue and it's the first night of your tour or the last night of your tour that you will want to set that event up for live streaming and and that's kind of the approach that that we're um that we're taking with that um as well as continuing to work with you know amazing production partners like drift who we worked with a lot last year um to do the kind of big standalone live streams which i also still think are, are not going anywhere yeah huge technological feat at that too to do a really high quality live stream I can imagine. So that's awesome. There was, there was a lot of lessons learned last year, <laughs> all the hard way. <laughs> so 
can we take the perspective of an artist now? Um, what, what would you recommend if, if I'm an artist and I want to try to take advantage of the DICE platform? What would you tell that person? I think that um, well, there's, there's a number of things that you can do with us. Um, I think one thing would be to, you know, depending on how big the artist is, um, working with your manager and your agent to um, really consider venue selection when you're thinking about playing shows and really thinking about who you want to work with and um, how you want to develop. I think that that first part of getting the first, you know, like that moment of selling out the old blue last, right? If if that, that, was, that was such a big moment for someone, if you could get 150 people to turn up to a show, that's a great, great signal. So for those very, very early artists, I think thinking about working with a venue that works with Dice is a very good decision because it means that we're going to instantly be pulling um, that artist's event um, and showing it to fans through through discovery using our algorithm that's going to show the what we believe to be the right fans that show, even if they don't know that artist, because we're going to see um, which uh, fans are interested in similar artists. Um, we're going to see which fans are going to similar size shows or to that venue or to that promoters events more more frequently frequently so we should be able to find them in a smart way um an audience or help them find an audience for for that event when really like getting those first people there is kind of the hardest bit i think as it moves up um to like the 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 bigger artists there's some obvious benefits in terms of playing a venue where you know you can protect your um tickets from the secondary market and coming out and being like, we're playing these venues because we don't want tickets to be resold. And this is the price we want tickets to be. The waiting list is a completely secure, um, it's, a, it's a system where any fan who can't go can return their ticket to the waiting list once the event's sold out. And it's just a complete loop. So a fan on the waiting list can buy the ticket um, and the original fan gets their money back and there's, it doesn't have to be resold on any other platform. It just all goes through the DICE system. Um, so that's a really nice thing for fans, um, for artists to come out with and, 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 you know, say that they're, that they're doing. Um, and I think as well on the live streaming side for the, for the uh, artists that are in that sort of emerging established kind of stage, uh, to think about working with us, um, on how to, um, make and, um, deliver an amazing live stream experience to fans globally, uh, that have been using Dice over the last 18 months. I think that's, uh, a really nice route to work with us um, as well. So selfishly, let me ask about the New York City uh, market. So in terms of like the future of live music here in the city, let's just kind of take this as an example, but feel free to use other cities if you like. What do you see the next couple of years looking like in terms of people going back out and, and enjoying live music the way they used to uh, pre-pandemic? I've had, I've had so many emotional moments in the last few months going back out and being at some of these amazing venues on their first nights, um, open, uh, the first night at LPR, Le Poisson Rouge on, on Saturday night was one, um, just completely packed with a, you know, a thousand kids in there going crazy. And, um, you know, the, the, the team there did an incredible job, um, over the last 48 hours. I don't think they left the venue, just getting the place open. You know, there's all these stories, um, the first night at Avant Garden, Brooklyn Mirage um, open, I was stood just looking at the venue with people in there for the first time. And this guy comes up next to me and he's just like, starts crying. He's just like, looks up at the sky and he's, he's crying. And 
there's just like everyone can't wait to get back out you know and we're you know here just to help facilitate that and make that the best experience that they've ever had for discovering these events and buying the tickets and going to the show and getting in and having those moments and those memories like that's what we're that's what we're trying to do i think that the biggest shift will be the way that people um discover events in new york um for the venues that we work with um which is growing all the time um is is complete it's a completely different experience to to use dice versus checking your email for email lists or looking out for ads on facebook and instagram it's just a very different um experience so what i'm hoping is that the main difference is um because people are discovering events in, in a different way um they're going to be going to more events you know that's the mission of our company is to get people out more um you know it's wild to me that you would live in new york and not be out you know, so I think as the venues get back to full capacity and going out, you know, having their um, their calendars full, you know, every night or as much much as they need to be every weekend, um, that we can just help to to pack all the venues out. Um, have you been out yet? Have you been to a show? Not yet, but I did download the Dice app, which I gotta I gotta thank you for. I have an Android, so thank you for not ignoring us. Uh, no, um, no, the app is quite slick on Android and runs very well, so. Congratulations on that. Thanks. Yeah, the Android uh, development team are going to be so happy when I tell them that. That's awesome. Bravo. Thank you for not ignoring us. Nice job, guys. <laughs> the one person that's downloaded it on Android. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, it was you. Okay, great. <laughs> we noticed on the on the webpage that you do brand partnerships. So could you talk a little bit about um, that part of the company and, and some of the work you've done there? Yeah, for sure. Um, we, the, the first or second month after we launched we did a our first brand partnership deal which was actually with red bull and they had this event at earl's court in london um which is a huge event and they said can we put the last thousand tickets on dice and we said for sure let's do it and um what we didn't know was that all their marketing was about to run um even though it was almost sold out they hadn't pressed go on any of their marketing campaigns so everything switched over to dice they were pointing to dice on their website and then all of a sudden every bus in london said go to redbullcultureclash.com to buy tickets and it pointed everyone to our brand new app which was about six weeks old so um it was a great first experience with working with a brand um and an amazing event uh but we've we've worked a lot with different brands uh we worked on the apple music festival in london at the roundhouse um We've worked with Adidas a lot. Um, we've worked with loads of different um, brands that have a good kind of um, feeling for us in terms of they're a brand that if we want to, if we're going to do an event with them, it's going to add value to our fans. So we say no to a lot of brands. Um, we say no more than we say yes. Uh, but often we work with a brand to make sure that if they're doing an event, it's filled with fans. Um, so we can activate a, an audience for them. Um, that's going to mean that when they have spent all the money booking Pharrell to play their shoe launch, it's not just going to be a room full of either random competition winners from a social media post or just full of kind of employees and press. Um, what we can do is get, you know, 500 really big Pharrell fans in that room. Um, and that's going to make the whole event feel and um, be a lot better for everyone, including Pharrell. So um, that's the kind of thing that we do uh, with, with brands. On, on the brand partnerships web, uh, webpage, it says DICE is the authority on the going out trends of 18 to 30s. So 
unfortunately I've left that demographic a long time ago. So I'm really curious. Um, and it's not like you have to be specifically talking about DICE's kind of like, you know, strategic plan over the next few years, but I definitely have read, you know, some information about um, a lot of like, you know, parents and people in their forties, fifties, sixties who, um, I mean, if we can ignore COVID for a minute, you know, spend a lot of money actually on, you know, VIP packages and, and going out and seeing a lot of, you know, um, you know, acts who have been around for, for some time now, is, is that a, a demographic or, or part of the kind of audience population that you've thought about just personally and professionally? We, uh, we, we have historically, we found that um, the audiences that go out the most is 21 years old. And the audience that spends the most is like 28, it's like 27 and a bit, you know, which makes sense, right? It's like people are going out the time, they're maybe going to more free things or cheap things, and then you're a bit older, start making some more money, and then you go and paying to go to lots of shows. Um, and then it kind of dips off. That's another like pre-COVID stat. I have no idea how COVID is gonna change that as we look at the data over the next um six months or so from now. I think it might look a little bit different because to me it feels like everyone just wants to go out. You know, I was at um I was at uh, Black Coffee at at Brooklyn Mirage and the age range on that was clearly huge. Like regardless of looking at the data in the back end, it's like you could see that that was like a really wide range crowd. Um, and so I think there's like a thing of everyone now maybe appreciating going out again. Yeah. You know, I think everyone's felt very stuck and everyone is kind of bored of the TV. So I think, you know, if you can go out, you will go out. Um, uh, so hopefully that that's going to mean more people are going out, which is obviously a great thing. Um, but what we're, what we're really focused on is like get the, 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 the types of shows that people can go to all the time, you know? So the very, ex very, very expensive VIP package at a stadium, people aren't going to do that every night of the week, you know, the elsewhere show, you know, on the rooftop. Yeah. Maybe you would do that four times in one week. It's so much fun. Like, um, so that's why we're, that's why we're focused on those, um, kind of types of venues and events as well. Um, cause it's kind of like the audience is just going to be going out all the time. Gotcha. To go back to data real quick. Um, I, I want to really commend y'all for your diversity, equity, and inclusion webpage that you have on, on dice.fm. Uh, check Thanks. it out everyone. I think it's it's really amazing uh, the amount of transparency and just kind of I think the progressive way with which you look at yourselves internally because for for those who haven't seen it um, they they talk about gender and ethnicity you know not even just the entire company but leadership and the people in the technology parts of the company as well as where they're from age religion all the all these really interesting statistics about your workforce um, could you talk a little bit how that kind of came to be because um, it's definitely uh, yeah very it's 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 pleasantly refreshing, honestly, to see. Oh, great! Thank, thank you so much. Um, you know, we, um, I think, I think last year um, for everyone um, around, obviously everything that happened with George Floyd and um, and and the Black Lives Matter movement last year um, was a big kind of wake up call for um, lots of businesses. Um, and lots of leaders in businesses, our, ourselves included, and um, we we really took that time to put in place a lot of the initiatives that um, now our uh, head of DI is running, um, which is amazing. And uh, she sits on our 
you know, most senior leadership team. And um, it's, it's a huge priority of the business. We, um, you know, we decided quite early that the transparency and accountability that um, making all of that work public um, would bring would be a very good thing. Um, which is why it all sits there and why you see those updates coming through there. Um, and yeah, there's a lot happening internally, um, not just on kind of how we can create um, the business that we want to create, um, but also thinking and talking a lot about how we can make the whole industry um, fairer for underrepresented communities. Um, and it's just something that we've we've decided to prioritize the business. And um, yeah, it's... it's um, it's it's going well. So I was reading an article written by Phil, the founder of Dice, and he lays out twenty things that uh, he's learned or, or that you guys have learned about live streaming. And I think there's some really useful advice there. Uh, by the way, if any artists are listening, uh, we'll link to it in the show notes. But I want to zero in on the last bit of advice he gives. Um, he writes, combine data with intuition. You're a creator. You instinctively know what works. Combining that with data will help drive those instincts even more. Just remember to be data-informed, not data-driven, as unpredictability, especially in creativity, is what makes humans human. Unpredictability and creativity is an important human trait. So I think I speak for uh, both Jason and myself when I say that that's a really good way of putting it because we always, you know, talk about the the, the balance between um, we put it data and gut essentially, and it's another way of reminding artists and music business people that you know music always comes first and data should really only serve as like a a guide and not an end all be all. With all that said. One, how do you approach data in your day-to-day? And two, do you or DICE operate as data-informed or data-driven? And what are some examples of that? Oh, wow. Um, That's a great question. Also, yeah, Phil really nailed that last point on his things. Really eloquent. It's really good. good. It's really good. I, I feel like it's happened gradually over time that we've become more and more fluent with data as an organization. Our first hire was a data scientist though, who's still with us, Greg, who builds our algorithm. And we, uh, yeah, he's, he's amazing. Um, shout out to Greg. Shout yeah. out to Greg. Yeah, <laughs> thank you. Um, and, but, but over time, I think we've become much more um, reliant on it in a good way as a business. And, we are, you know, tracking things in a smarter way. We're definitely using it in, a, in in smarter and smarter ways. We're using it more and more. And I know that because we've got lots of people joining the team at the moment. We're hiring lots of people. And I was with our EVP content just last week and saying, do you have all the data you need? Do you have all the dashboards you need? Um, is there anything you've had in any of the other companies you that you've worked that you um, don't have uh, here. And he said, this is more <laughs> dashboards, more better produced data, cleaner data, um, better analytics than I've had at any company I've worked at. And I was like, okay, so I'm not sure at what point we went from not knowing what to track and or how to use it to having more stuff than you know these senior hires coming in have ever seen. Um, but we're at a point now where I think we're 
we we know how to pick up on the on the right um on the right signals and we're, and we're looking and, and tracking the right things um but as phil's point um it's it's music and we're in a creative industry and there is times when you just have to um go with your gut and i think that that comes in when um for an example would be if we were thinking about signing a partnership um with a promoter where we felt like that promoter might add way more value to us as a partner um, than uh, the data might read uh, because we know that they are influential or a tastemaker or um, they have a, you know a, a kind of different um, influence that you, the, the numbers might not reflect. So that would be an example of something that we would do. Um, and and similarly with you know especially when we're with our artist development team um when we're when we're looking at that we're we're you know we're almost entirely looking at for very very new artists we're going to be listening to the music you know do we want to be working with this artist and, and supporting them and using our you know years of experience with that to try and figure out who's going to be the one <laughs> Is there um, any way for people uh, who wants to find out more about Dyson and yourself, maybe a place to reach out to you on, on social media? Yeah, I actually, um, I actually quit social media a few years ago. Um, I kind of have a Twitter. There's, don't expect a lot from me there. I have a LinkedIn. Don't expect a huge amount from me there. Um, but uh, yeah, you can uh, check check out that app. That's what I'd want people to do. Um, I, uh, I also recommend if you're, if you're ready for, for no Instagram, then, then do it. It's, uh, it's glorious once you're off it. <laughs> Fair enough. Well said. Cool. Well, thanks for us for joining us. Yeah, thanks, thanks so man. much guys. Yeah. I really, really appreciate it. Cool. And welcome to New York. Thanks man. All right. How Music Charts is written and produced by Jason Hoven and Rutger Rosenborg of Chartmetric. As part of our effort to equip artists with the power of music analytics, we've just rolled out a new artist tier, which you can sign up for at app.chartmetric.com slash plan slash artist for about the price of a coffee per week. Free Chartmetric accounts are available at chartmetric.com and podcast notes are at blog.chartmetric.com. You can also subscribe there for additional insights delivered to your inbox right after we publish. Did we mention we have a YouTube channel? That's right. Subscribe for Chartmetric tutorials and tips for indie artists. Follow our thoughts on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, all at Chartmetric. That's Chartmetric, no S. That's it. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.